You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered, a writer and a novelist. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning. His newest book is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast, and he's also the author of a new textbook, Literature, Craft, and Voice. We're going to talk about Volume 1 fiction. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Again, my pleasure, Rick. Alan, this is a very unusual-looking piece of uh, literary textbook. It doesn't look anything like the Norton Anthology. How would you describe it? <laughs> I would hold say, it up to the microphone. Uh, well, holding it up to the microphone, I would say, boy, it looks almost like a a, a science textbook. Huh? It's got a lot of illustrations, or a wonderful, wonderful illustrated book of the kind that I really love because it's really got a lot. The visual uh, design in this is great. Yeah. So if we were uh, uh, trying to instruct students about dinosaurs, there'd be a long chain of evolution right? yeah. <laughs> uh, well I, actually the model that our uh, our publisher had in mind was more like a, uh, you know a, a very fat issue of Harper's magazine oh wow well that's yes that's exactly that's that's it yeah you, you guys have nailed it now um, slick paper four color design slick paper four color design uh, how much of a hand did you and your collaborator Nick Del Banco have on this uh, well, once our our publisher decided uh, that we were going to go with this, uh, you know, in in this way with slick paper, glossy paper, and four color design, and a really um, eye catching layout, um, we we cheered. I mean, because that's the way we imagined the book, even though we hadn't known it at the time. Well, it's really beautiful, and one of the things that uh, strikes me about this is that, I mean, when you see a book like this, how long have you been working on this? Well, we, we've been working five and a half years on this, um, and apparently the, the dirty little secret in the textbook business is that's a very short period of time. Our publisher said when we finally finished it, we, um, maybe six weeks ago, we finished the, the, the drama volume. It's three volumes, fiction, poetry, and drama. Uh, when we finally finished the drama volume our, and sent it off to the printer, our uh, publisher, a uh, wonderful woman at McGraw-Hill named Lisa Moore said, oh, and by the way, guys, um, I, I can tell you now that these projects usually take about eight years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's a remarkable amount of writing that you must have done. And, and could you talk about how you went about putting something together? I guess first describe what we've got here. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, the we're working from two angles. One is we want to present the literary tradition to the incoming uh, college student who, uh, you know, basically is presumably a blank slate. Uh, so we want to convince them that this is the way that they should be reading and this is the context they should be reading in. This is where the things they like came from. Um, and the, these are some things that they might not have read or that they ha- might have read previously but didn't like uh, that they should like. And we would encourage them to uh, be, become fans of uh, 
as Facebook language would have it, become a fan of Shakespeare, right? Become a friend of Sophocles. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, I, I don't think that's too far-fetched a notion because, I mean, the one thing that the premise we begin with is, you know, this is the, the tradition that we love. These are the works of literature that we love and have lived all our lives with, and we want to pass this on to another generation of, of, of uh, potential readers. So that's how we went into it. Um, it this, you know, as I as I said, it's in three volumes: fiction, poetry, and drama. And uh, fiction is is a, I guess you'd say, a, a a an elongated and modified version of what you'd call the canon, the traditional collection of short stories. It's, it's mostly short stories that that you'd expect to find, plus uh, some innovative material. Um, the the equivalent of presenting classical European music with a little reggae and and uh, you know uh, Indonesian uh, music on uh, around the edges because um, you know I was trained as a comparativist and, and so I I just naturally uh, or unnaturally see literature not just as a as British and American but as a whole world of fiction and poetry and drama so. Uh, we rather naturally added uh, a lot of stories by uh, African and Egyptian and uh, South Asian writers to uh, what you take to be the traditional canon of short fiction. So uh, uh, you, you, you do get a much uh, larger version of the world than in the, uh, the, the normal textbook that you'll find on college shelves. Well, and each um, story has a, a lot more than just the story. So tell us about how you went about constructing these entries. Did you like figure out, say, okay, each story is going to have this, 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 and this, yeah. and then have to check off, write these pieces for each one? Yes. Our, our rubric was that uh, you know, we want to move students through, a obviously, a literal reading of the story so that they have it in front of them, but we want to take them from the literal to a, a higher stage of understanding and analysis. So, uh, you know, we go through various, uh, various uh, series of questions that we hope will help them to see that the story is, is more than a literal rendering of, uh, of uh, an experience. Um, and, and because the short story in its essence is a naturally symbolic form, I mean, the language of the short story is symbolic language, uh, we, we try to help them to see that, um, you know, there's much more to life in the story uh, than, than the literal. Well, one of the things that, that I really love about this is um, a lot of the ancillary material. You've got, you know, um, conversations with the writers. Yeah. You have, and you have some actually online. Could you talk about creating some of this online content? Yeah, actually, when, when, you, when we, with hindsight, we look on this, we see that what we've done is we've produced a... A uh, three dozen uh, video interview series with uh, some of the major writers in, uh, in the world, uh, and you know the, we we kind of started off doing this, and you know we kind of backed into it. Um, but when I suggested that uh, to to our publisher and and Nick uh, Delbanco concurred that maybe we could do a couple of interviews with some of these living writers. Um, I think this big light bulb went off. One of those thousand-hour new light bulbs went off in our uh, publisher's head, and she said, 
how about three dozen? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, again, fools rush in. We, you know, while we were writing and writing and writing, we were also uh, producing, 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 and uh, gathered uh, clumps of writers in various locations. We did most of the interviewing in New York and San Francisco, but some in Ann Arbor, Michigan, some in Boston. Uh, and we uh, produced um, a number of writers speaking about the selection that we've included in in the textbook. So from, uh, I, I think, what was probably John Updike's last interview, talking about his classic story A&P to uh, what may have been uh, Chimamanda Adichie's first interview, or one of her first interviews, talking about a story of hers called Cell One that uh, appeared in The New Yorker about a year and a half ago. It's in her new collection of stories. Uh, and a number of fiction writers in between, uh, T.C. Boyle and uh, Amy uh, Hempel and uh, Joyce Carol Oates, um, Amy Tan, uh, you know, a lot of the major uh, American fiction, writer, fiction writers who are working today came in and very graciously, uh, you know, came for cost. I mean, a, 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 a tiny honorarium compared to what they usually uh, get for these things. And um, they came in and to to the studio. And uh, I'll tell you, what well, Amy Tan did the funniest thing, which was uh, she said... Uh, can I have a piece of paper, please? Eight by twelve piece of paper. And we said sure, and she said, "Now, can I have a marker?" And she drew, she sketched two stick figures, and ha asked the cameraman to tape them t just below the camera lens. And she said, "Those are students," and I want to remind myself that I'm speaking directly to students. <laughs> um, and I think most of the most of the people had that in mind that this is a rather special occasion. It wasn't just a the generic interview, but they were speaking to in you know new college students who may or may not have read any of their work uh, before this about the particular work that we've collected here and which we hope students will study closely, and uh, talked about the the. the genesis of that this particular work in question and uh, and put that in the context of their you know larger writing lives and and their lives as readers as well as writers uh you know richard ford uh talked about his dyslexia and how difficult reading was for him when he first started out and and uh, use that as a way of getting into how some students do find reading difficult at first and, and but that it eventually brings great rewards. Um, so it, it is a, the, the videos are quite personal and very striking in that they're, they're uh, directed to uh, the students we all were when, when we were uh, you know, 17 and a half, 18 years old. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like uh, for me if uh, somebody like uh, William Kittredge or Barry Lopez uh, spoke directly to me. Uh, now, in this book, you're bringing your teaching your students to do a lot of different things in a kind of an interesting order. I mean, it, it seems uh, almost redundant, but it, it's fascinating to me that that you know the first thing you want to tell them how to do, teach them how to do, is how to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk about what you mean by that. 
Well, uh, I think we touched on that just a little bit earlier. Uh, what we mean is we want to get the students to move beyond the literal. Uh, for most of us uh, who weren't stars in high school English for one reason or another, uh, just reading the story and getting the, the, you know, the plot, you know, which we took to be w one thing happening after another after another, um, that was enough. And for most of us in, you know, crappy high schools around the country, um, that was enough for our teachers, too. <laughs> they just wanted us to read the damn stories and, and uh, then worry too much about what happened after that. But, you know, one of the great things about uh, moving from high school to the university level is that all sorts of uh, doors open for you in your mind. And you can begin to see that uh, the, the language has a life of its own. That literal language is one thing, and you begin to discover that literary language is another. In the same way that you you know you notice that dirt in the world is literal dirt, but that dirt shaped into you know turned into clay and shaped into pots and and figurines is another thing. And so we and politicians. <laughs> we'll let that pass at this moment. But, uh, so we we work, you know, our earnest best to try to get students to see the distinction between literal language and literary language, between literal language and and figurative language, to for them to see that uh, the, that great, to share that great insight that uh, Gertrude Stein gave us all uh, in in her, her uh, essays, in which she points out that uh, literary language is distinctly different from ordinary language, and it is a medium to be shaped and formed as any other medium is, like clay, like light in painting, like shapes and forms um, on a canvas. So um, that is an enormously important distinction for students to make, and that's where we began uh, our work with these stories. So these are not just uh, literal renderings of something that actually happened. These are shaped and formed um, and shapely uh, renderings in, in, in symbolic language about uh, events that, uh, how would Aristotle put it, that may not have occurred but should have so that one can understand better the world uh, around us. You know, it, it struck me as I was looking at this um, with all the kind of multimedia mm -hmm. uh, aspect of this that no matter how far you go into the multimedia, whether you've got virtual reality, computer games, films, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. immersive, at the bottom of any of that is writing and language. Mm -hmm. And it, none of that stuff gets anywhere unless you start here at right. the bottom. Right. Here. That's why, you know, the chapter on plot is enormously important for us. And we try to to again to move uh, students beyond the literal understanding of what happens in a story it's not just one thing occurs and then another and another uh again aristotle in the poetics you know thousands of years ago made that, that distinction between uh between literal events and action uh but for me that's best uh rendered uh in in modern terms in this essay or a preface that Hemingway wrote to, uh, uh, I think it's the second edition of For Whom the Bell Tolls. He describes sitting on the veranda of a ski resort in Sun Valley. He's having breakfast with Marlena Dietrich. Uh, you know, we all, you all do that, right? <laughs> uh, 
and he's reading the new the morning paper and she swats the paper aside and as he describes and points up to the ski slope and she says ski slope and says look papa look and he looks up and he sees these skiers coming down the slope and he turned he, he says he turned to her and said daughter don't confuse motion with action so you know that distinction is something extremely important for students to grasp uh, at the very beginning of literary study the the uh, you know the literal events in a story are one thing the way in which the writer arranges them uh, for the maximum effect of of uh, meaning and uh, the the impact of the language is another thing so we try to make that distinction between just motion and action it, it interests me too when I was thinking about you know creating a book like this you've written novels you've written criticism uh, writing uh, assignments is <laughs> is this something new to you you know uh, every story in this fiction volume and, and and you know every poem of the hundreds and hundreds of poems in the poetry volume and every play in the drama volume has a what we have learned to call in the <laughs> by the trade appellation of a question set and uh i have to say that writing these questions for study for these stories was the thing i feared most um and I th thank the gods that my, you know, co-writer and my collaborator in this, Nick Delbanco, seemed to be very, very good at making these question sets. But, um, you know, by the time we finished this volume, I got pretty damn good at it myself and really kind of began to enjoy uh, figuring out the best way to present these stories to the students and that's by figuring out the best questions to have them ask themselves about the stories so every question set takes the students from the literal to they they then they have to consider you know we were talking about distinction between motion and action how the incidents in the story are how the writer arranges the incidents in the story for maximum dramatic effect and uh so they have to recognize something about the importance of plot. They have to recognize something about the importance of, uh, of diction, that is, what words does the writer choose to get the maximum effect. They have to understand something about uh, character analysis and how that relates to, to uh, the psychology of our species. And uh, they have to ask themselves about the setting of the story. Uh, so, well, you know, the, the point of view all of these uh, elements of of fiction uh, come into play here, but every question set takes them through um, an accounting of the story and then uh, a, an analysis to the point where um, they eventually have to recognize the symbolic aspect of the stories and try to see the story in, in the overall context of... Uh, not just the writer's work, but of human experience and their own experience. When I was looking at this, too, I was thinking, you know, irregardless of being a textbook, it's a sophisticated, beautiful, slick, short story anthology mm -hmm. that, you know, um, even if you've read some of these stories, you can pick this up and get a really different slant yeah. on any of the stories in here. You know, it's interesting, and I, and I don't mean to, you know, ring our own bell on this, but... Um, uh, you know, some enormously sophisticated people 
friends friends of mine who have happened to see this volume pick it up and leaf through the pages and have said you know i'm going to read through this and take this course because you know of all the years all the years that i've been reading i haven't really looked at things uh, you know from an analytical perspective and i think i could get a lot more pleasure out of these stories if i do that so if it can make my 94 year old friend from washington dc paul lewis uh, want to become a freshman again i think it's it's kind of an accomplishment <laughs> Well, well, I I feel the same way because it allows me to go back and, and approach these stories that I have some, you know, they exist in my mind now, the ones that I've read as like little clouds back in the day and, and mm -hmm. to approach them with a, um, a lifetime of experience and, and also in an organized manner. And this is a very organized way you, you have this set up. You, as you said, we talk about um, you have modules on plot, character setting with stories that, you know, emphasize each one. Um, could you talk uh, about um, some of the things I thought was interesting? It was uh, social commentary in American regionalism. Mm -hmm. I think those are that's an interesting perspective to bring to to bring to this. Yeah, we we wanted to um, to bring some of our own interests into this. Um, you know, making a a textbook is a obviously a hugely collaborative effort, um, as as close to making a movie as you can get in print. I think. Uh, and it requires a tremendous amount of research and review. Um, so different from writing a novel that it's, it was almost at, at first beyond explaining. Imagine that you, you, you do chapter one and then you send it out to 10 readers to tell you what they think about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, so in that way, it's the antithesis of novel writing or story writing. But that's the way this project works and all textbook work, where you, you send out the chapters to people in the field, in this case, instructors, literature instructors who are there in the trenches every day, uh, every month, every year, working with students, uh, trying to figure out the best way to impart to the students what they think the students should know, and trying to get the students to, to evolve to a higher uh, understanding of the work that they're dealing with. Uh, so, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of readers are involved in this. Wow. I can it, imagine. I was thinking uh, of how many fact checkers you must have had. Oh, yeah. And we st I still, uh, I've learned that uh, the poetry volume has two errors. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Another 400-page volume with two errors, um, which we will correct in the next edition. But, um, yeah, there are hundreds and hundreds of readers, test readers, I guess you could call them, like the people who go to watch uh, previews of movies and then make their comments. Uh, and, uh, you know, a number of editors, as well as the publisher, and assistants who, you know, we've had half a dozen assistants help us with um, the research and the proofreading. Um, so I would say, you know, as far as the staff goes, it's, um, you know, me and Nick and our publisher and her assistant and our editor and her assistant plus about oh i don't know another dozen people actually who had what how do you say on your planet hands-on work with this uh, this uh textbook and uh, it, it 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 really became uh, so all involving that um you know we, we we were just completely overwhelmed in a certain way um 
and uh, we learned a lot from the experience. We learned that you know the the kinds of problems that uh, instructors uh, work with every day at, at at the entry level of literary study, and we learned that we had to uh, change and transform and 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 in it make make real innovations in the way that we presented the material if we were going to break through. Uh, the what I guess what you have to say is the average American neo Puritanism that comes along with your average American college student. You know, oh, why do I need this? What use is this going to be to me? All right, I'll do it, but I'm not going to be happy reading this story. Uh, and I'm going and I promise you, I'm going to forget about it as soon as I possibly can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's a that's a considerable uh, uh, hill to climb there in terms of motivation for you. Yeah. But, you know, we care desperately about this business of, of art and literature. And um, so, you know, we did our damnedest to try to make a book that was going to break through. Not, you know, n- not to the students who love, you know, that small percentage. Uh, what Sten- Stendhal calls them, the happy few who, who know how much they love literature when they begin with. Although I think the book serves these people well. We want to break through to you know the the, the you know the quotidian uh, clay uh, because we believe you know deeply and sincerely with every fiber of our body that if you don't know this study well you're not going to know much about your own life as you go through the years. So um, that, I mean that you know we we worked with our hearts on our sleeves in this book. Um, and as well as uh, 10 hours a day at the, at the keyboard. <laughs> you know, working out here in Santa Cruz in the summers, um, I had, uh, you know, I had this uh, time lag because uh, my collaborator, Del Banco, is in the Eastern Time Zone and the publisher, McGraw Hill, is in the Eastern Time Zone. So, you know, I'd wake up uh, at 6 and get to the keyboard by 6.30 and there would be, you know, every day a minimum of 40 emails <laughs> that have gone back and forth that I had to respond to uh, before breakfast. So that, that was an extra added uh, uh, labor that I had. Um, one of the things that, that I liked was that, you know, you, you included a lot of uh, stuff that we would not expect to find in a literary anthology. Um, um, Michael Crichton, Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I would, so tell us a little bit about some of your, you know, and I'm wondering if you hesitated at making a decision at some of these modern choices, you know, is 20 years from now, are people going to say, why did they put that in there? <laughs> well, that's, you know, you always take a chance when you do that. But, um, you know, we, we have Crichton and Gaiman in there in a, in a sequence on uh, the transformation of the Beowulf story through various uh, genres. So, um, you know, we kind of hedged our bets there, but I, I think it's an ed- entertaining and visually appealing section. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the next edition we might try taking a comedy script through various stages because um, uh, Nick Del Banco's uh, son-in-law is a s- screenwriter and director who's had n- a number of successes, so we may b- pick his brain and go through his files and do a, a sequence there. So... Um, uh, you know, to parallel this, uh, the the way we treated the Beowulf story here, and it may bring in some writers that and actors that 
people may have questions about, but it's in that context where this, you know, this, it has a pedagogical purpose. Students can learn a few things about uh, the way work evolves going through a number of genres and a number of age, a number of time periods. And finally, I'd like to um, talk about some of the, you know, uh, that, and, 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 and just let me add, I mean, which means, you know, in the next edition, Jim Carrey may appear. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, now that's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, just because uh, it makes this, uh, you know, the, just the whole format of this is, is very engaging. And, and uh, as, I can, as I say, I think a, a lot of people, especially people who are, are, you know, interested in writing and becoming writers and mm -hmm. just want to reacquaint themselves with the canon, this is mm -hmm. a... Uh, certainly the best damn looking canon book I've ever seen. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm glad <laughs> the most you, readable. I'm glad you say that. And and the, uh, I mean that's the great thing. The 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 great enthusiasm as well as great uh, sophistication that comes along with the video interviews I think will be really uh, valuable for anybody who who wants to become a writer. But you know our premise here is that uh, every every writer begins as a serious reader. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we want to try to make as many students as we can help themselves become serious readers. You know, what they do with that, beyond that, is, is their own business. But, uh, you know, if we can produce a generation of serious readers, um, I, I, you know, Nick Delbanco and I see this as a national defense problem, right? I mean... <laughs> The, uh, I agree. You know, we need as many serious readers as we can get in in uh, contemporary culture, and uh, that's what we're trying to produce. I mean, the, you know, for the average college freshman, if if you know they if they can arm themselves with the ability to read and the ability that follows from good reading, which is learning how to become better writers, they can go into whatever major they want and become superior students. Um, and I think that's always been the premise of, um, of English uh, classes at the, at the entry level. But being, you know, two fiction writers that we are, uh, we've approached this, I think, you know, from an angle that uh, you don't find in, in um, most textbooks. So we're hoping that because of the attractiveness of the format, the, the you know glossy paper, four color uh, presentation, lavish illustrations, and um, I mean, where do you see the Blake section in the poetry volume? Um, it's out of this world, as Blake is out of this world, <laughs> yes. um, and, and as well as our you know approach, uh, our pedagogical approach. Uh, he said with high seriousness. Um, all of that combined. We really want to, to uh, transform the textbook, you know, those, those thousand, two thousand page um, textbooks with single space uh, print. <clears throat> Excuse me. We want to transform those doorstops into portals, right? We don't want to use a doorstop. We want to open doors. Um, and that, that's been our goal all along with this. I was fascinated at the end when I was looking in, in the, the back of the book where you're giving advice on how to avoid uh, plagiarism and, of course, the uh, Magic Limitation Authority or a Modern Language <laughs> Association, as it were, documentation mm -hmm. style guide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, those are little extras you have to provide in, in textbooks. 
So, I mean, the, the simple the simple fact about plagiarism is all you need is quotation marks. <laughs> um, that that's um, and yet, <laughs> and yet, it's just you just have to recognize that you employ strategically employ quotation marks, and and you're not plagiarizing. Um, as Rick Kleffel wrote in his essay, and then <laughs> quotation mark, and then you say what Rick says. You don't simply write down what Rick says and present it as your own. Always a good idea. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. We've been talking about his new textbook, Literature, Craft, and Voice, Volume 1 Fiction. We'll be talking about poetry and drama in the upcoming weeks. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.